0: Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. Thanks for connecting with us. To discover more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz. May this message be an encouragement to you. Uh, over the last few weeks, I've been doing a series talking about the relationship of the Old Testament to the New Testament. And uh, I've suggested to you strongly that we need to see the two intertwined as part of the one story, and that we don't do what some writers and scholars are suggesting we do and try and unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. Now I'm, I'm aware that the Old Testament isn't always easy to understand. Uh, there are parts of it that perhaps at best are embarrassing and at worst repugnant and offensive to modern sensibilities. Critics of the scripture, particularly the Old Testament, claim that it gives warrant for things like child abuse, and they will quote you know, Abraham potentially offering up uh, his son Isaac as a burnt sacrifice. They'll talk about ethnic cleansing, Joshua's bloodthirsty massacre of the Canaanites carried out and I quote, with xenophobic relish. They talk about slavery, misogyny, polygamy, and numerous other abusive practices, and it's frankly not hard to see why some have suggested that we unhitch our faith from the Old Testament. It does make your apologetic task a whole lot easier. As one author commented, when skeptics point out the violence, the misogyny, the scientific and historically unverifiable claims of the Hebrew Bible, instead of trying to defend these things, we can shrug, give them our best confused look and say, I'm not sure why you're bringing that up. My Christian faith is not based on any of that. Now, that might be a tempting uh, way to approach the Old Testament, but what I've suggested to you is that if it's a story from start to finish, then that solution creates more problems than it solves. We do have to deal with the hard passages and the difficult places in the Old Testament. I think in one of the first messages I suggested it might be a little bit like having an eccentric uncle in the family circle. Now, you can be totally embarrassed by that eccentric uncle and try and cut him off and out of the family gatherings. Or perhaps you might take another route. You might take time to wonder why he is somewhat eccentric. Try to understand his eccentricities. And in the process, you might actually find he is an absolute gem and has much to teach you. I remember in one of our previous churches, we had such a man. If you met him, he would strike you as somewhat unusual. He looked a little bit like Doc Brown from uh, the movie Back to the Future, only he always wore a tie. I don't think I ever saw the man without a tie, no matter what he was doing. He was a soft-spoken man, somewhat disheveled, uh, and in church he would approach newcomers with a little black book and he would ask them their name and he would record it alongside the date. And to be truthful, it freaked a few people out interesting though th- th- those same visitors would sometimes come back years later only to be approached by the same man called by name and said oh you were last with us and he would name the date <laughs> and uh, you know despite the strange mannerisms he he truly truly was a gem of a man and i got to know him beyond those eccentricities now I think sometimes the Old Testament could perhaps be a little like that. We don't have the time this morning, and I suspect most of us don't have the inclination to work our way through all the hard passages. But what I want to do this morning is perhaps give you a couple of ideas that as you come to those hard passages, you might like to hold in your toolbox, and that sometimes they will give you some understanding of those old passages and perhaps make them easier or a little more palatable. I'm not suggesting these ideas will solve all your problems. They won't. They won't answer all your questions. Um, I still have some of my own. The first one, however, is this. We need to remember that the Old Testament is primarily a narrative. It's a story of what happened. Now, what happened is not the same thing as God meant it to happen, or God wanted it to happen, or somehow, because it's recorded in Scripture, it is a reflection of the character of God. A lot of the Old Testament is descriptive, and it's not meant to be taken as prescriptive. Now, the difference between those two things is descriptive is what is the case. It's just what happened, it's what took place. Prescriptive is what ought to to be the case. If you read the Old Testament as prescriptive, there will be a lot in it that you will stumble over. You know, critics talk about the the ubiquitous weirdness of the Bible and they somehow assume that God is responsible for it all. Listen, the Old Testament is rooted in a cultural setting that is completely unlike our own. It's, you know, you can go to another culture in our time, in our world, and be struck by how different things are, and sometimes we say, man, that is so weird, why do they do that? Listen, we aren't talking about a culture that is just geographically removed from us, we are talking about a culture that is removed, r- removed thousands of years from us, as well as geographically removed from us. And... Their moral presuppositions and characters, uh, categories, are sometimes completely alien and sometimes shocking to us. For example, you take the very offensive, at least for us postmoderns anyway, the story that, that's found in Judges chapter 19. It's a man and his concubine, and he, he's making a journey to his hometown. He stops off in a place called Gibeah and he allows her to be gang raped through the evening. he wakes up the next morning, she's dead, he cuts up her body and sends a piece of her body to the 12 tribes in Israel. Israel come together, make war on the tribe that surrounds Gibeah, which is Benjamin, butchering them to the point that almost the whole tribe is wiped out. And, And it's a shocking story. And for us postmoderns, we view the incident through the eyes of our, our modern sensibilities and the Geneva Convention, and wonder how is this possible? This is terrible. It is not how the wor- the world worked then. Life was brutal, nasty, and for the most part, and for many, very short. The world was different, and the scripture reflects that. It doesn't mean it's prescriptive, it's just descriptive. It doesn't mean that God wanted it that way. In fact, when you come to some of the ideas in the Old Testament, what you have is a true record of false ideas. Now, that might be a struggle for some of you. But the reality is, it's historical, it's descriptive, it's not all prescriptive, and in some cases, it's a true record of false ideas. Because most of the ancient world lived in strong, male-dominated, patriarchal societies, it doesn't mean that male-dominated leadership is prescriptive for all societies, and some people take it as being that. I'd like to suggest to you that's just descriptive. It's not necessarily prescriptive. Now the incredible challenge that we have as we come to study and read the Old Testament is discerning how we apply those ancient texts to our modern context. Biblical texts, as I say, are inextricably bound to a particular cultural context, and what we have to do is the sometimes hard work of discovering the difference between what is local, cultural, and descriptive, and what are universal kingdom values and, and are prescriptive. You say, well, Don, that's just too hard to do. Yeah. Uh, well, then, then go, go back to Mills and Boone. Okay? Go back, to, go back to the Marvel comics. We, we, are, we are seriously dealing with texts that, that require us to do a little bit of work. Okay? In seeking to discern the difference between those, and trying to discern the difference between God's universal intentions, and and what is just simply historical and descriptive, it's really helpful, at least I found it helpful, to consider what God intended at the beginning of the story and at the end of the story. And you can do that. You can go to the very beginning of the story and see what I call his creational realities or intentions. And you can go to the very end of the story and see his redemptive realities and intentions. And they will help you understand something of what God is aiming for in this story. When you go to the creational realities and intentions, and it's found in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, you find these sorts of things. Men and women created in the image of God. No gender disparities, no ethnic divisions, no social class barriers, lifelong monogamous marriage between a man and a woman, peace and harmony between God and men, and peace among human beings, harmony in an environmental system as men and women are good stewards of God's good world. It was called paradise. That's God's creational intentions. You go to the very end of the book, and as I say, you find the, re- the redemptive realities and intentions, Revelation chapter 21 and 22. Men and women at peace with God and with one another. No gender disparities, no ethnic divisions, no social class barriers, no pain, no tears, no sorrow, a perfect environment, and it's called paradise. Now those are very, very similar intentions and realities. It's what God wanted at the start of the story. It's what he will have at the end of the story. We are moving between those two poles, if you like, and we presently live in in a situation and we know enough of the story to know that between creation and consummation, something incredibly disruptive has taken place. It's found in Genesis chapter three, pretty soon after the story begins. We call it the fall. It amounted to a profound departure from God's original creational intentions. The world and everything in it has been thrown off its axis. And Genesis chapter 3 through chapter 11 tells that story. It's summed up by Genesis chapter six, verse five, where it says, the Lord saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth and that every inclination of the thought of their hearts was only evil continually. Something has gone dreadfully, dreadfully wrong. And it's, the world is characterized not just by personal sin and wickedness, but also by wicked dehumanizing customs and social structures. And so society becomes corrupted by and infected with gender disparity, strong patriarchal societies leading to polygamy and misogyny, xenophobic hatred and ethnic uh, clashes, social class divisions culminating in slavery for many. Not God's intention in the beginning and not God's aim for the end, but it's what's happened in the middle of the story. Now, in the middle of the story, God determines to come into this broken and corrupted situation to restore, to rescue, and to redeem. And that rescue starts in Genesis chapter 12, as God chooses a couple, Abraham and Sarah. He chooses Abraham and Sarah as as a couple and their family as the means by which and through whom he plans to deal with the sin and the brokenness of the world, the seed of Abraham. Now, and this is really important, God has to work with people and with Israel as he finds them. He meets people where they are in order to ultimately take them to where he wants them to be. He has to deal with the actual as he seeks to move them toward the ideal. And Scripture reflects that reality. God speaks to people and he begins to move them incrementally to where he wants them to go. And to give them his ultimate ethic, to say, hey, listen, this is the redemptive intentions of God would be simply to overwhelm those people who are nowhere near close to even understanding that. If human beings are to be treated as real human beings who possess the power of choice, then God's ultimate ethic, his better way, must come to them gradually, or they would exercise their freedom of choice and turn away from things that they simply did not understand. As God encountered these people, they are not in a place culturally or morally to hear that ultimate ethic. Let me let me try and illustrate this. Imagine if I stood before you as a congregation. Now, actually, we better make this 30 years earlier than, than present day, okay? Because I suspect things have changed significantly in more recent times, and you might be more sympathetic to what I'm just going to say to you Um, But 30 years ago, you probably wouldn't. You imagine, I stand up and I announce that petrol-driven vehicles are bad for the environment, it's not good stewardship, and we want you all to hand in your keys at the end of the service. We will take your vehicles and destroy them in the name of an ultimate and good ethic. Now 30 years ago, I would have been met with incredulity, mockery, and possibly violence. It's not an announcement that I would actually be keen to make today, to be truthful. However, I suspect that most of you are aware that we are ultimately heading incrementally in that direction. And I wonder that perhaps in 100 to 150 years from now, people will look back on our era with a degree of anger at our ignorance and our resistance to an idea that is so clearly right for the future of our planet. But you just can't dump the ultimate ethic on people. You have to move them incrementally. We've seen something like this happen actually on a global scale as Western democratic powers have sought to force equal rights and democratic and sexual reforms on cultures that are basically tribal in structure and have religious beliefs that are very, very different from the Western world. And, and those tribal structures and tribal people, and, and they have no value for such notions. And they do not readily assimilate our Western ideals. They will reject them outright for the most part. And if forced to adopt them by economic pressures, they adopt them only superficially. You cannot force people into an ultimate ethic. It has to happen incrementally. And, and, you know, the scriptures are no different. John Goldingay, the Australian scholar, says God starts with his people where they are, and if they cannot cope with a higher way, he comes with a lower one. Now, now I suspect some of you will be saying, well, I, I don't agree with that. I mean, God just gives them the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what the scriptures are. Well, look at Matthew chapter 19. Jesus is accosted by some Pharisees who want his opinion on a an intense debate that was going on at the time between two groups of scholars about divorce. Some scholars were opting for what was called any cause divorce, easy divorce. You could divorce your wife for any reason. Others were taking a more conservative pathway, trying to value marriage as much as, as was possible. And they came to Jesus and said, Jesus, is it right to divorce your wife for any cause? So this, you're being brought into a debate here, okay? What side are you on, Jesus? Now, Jesus actually does take sides. He sides with the more conservative school, and he appeals to creational intentions. He said, if you want to know what God wants and what should be the case... Look at the beginning of the story. Maybe look at the end of the story. So he he says this in chapter uh, chapter 19, verse 4. He answered, Haven't you read in your Bible that the Creator originally made man and woman for each other, male and female? And because of this, a man leaves his father and mother and is firmly bonded to his wife, becoming one flesh. No longer two bodies, but one. Because God created this organic union of the two sexes, no one should desecrate his art by cutting them apart. So he sides with the conservative scholars. Now, the more liberal scholars, they're not satisfied with this. The any cause divorce scholars shoot back. Well, why did Moses give instructions for divorce papers and divorce procedures? Moses doesn't agree with you. Jesus comes back and says, Moses provided divorce as a concession for your hard-heartedness, but it is not part of the original plan. Can I paraphrase that? God has to move people incrementally. If he just said, go back to the original plan, you, you're so hard-hearted, you're so blind, you would have rejected it out of hand. God works with people in the hardness and blindness of their heart, but he says it was not so in the beginning. He allowed for something less than ideal for a season, but was seeking to move them incrementally toward that ideal. Now, I suspect that that phrase, um, it was not so in the beginning, could be attached to a lot of ideas in the Old Testament. Concerning patriarchy, it was not so in the beginning. Concerning polygamy, it was not so in the beginning. Concerning slavery, it was not so in the beginning. Concerning violence, it was not so in the beginning. The New Testament assumes that God actually had put up with an inferior position, a less than ideal position and and less than ideal social structures But that now, in Jesus, God is calling us more toward the ideal. So it says in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, in the past, people did not understand God, and he overlooked this. But now he's telling everyone in the world to change and turn to him. He dealt with the blindness and and hardness of their heart. He came into a situation that was less than ideal, and rather than throw them all off their axis by giving them the ultimate ethic, he starts to move them incrementally toward the ideal. Now what many people do is they read the Old Testament holiness codes and they, ex- they assume it is an ultimate universal ethic for all people at all times. But I'd want to suggest to you that mosaic legislation wasn't always an expression of God's intended ultimate. It wasn't always the moral pinnacle. It represented a start. It represented a springboard anticipating further development toward the lofty ideals of God's creational and realities, and and what he will ultimately have in his redemptive realities. But what people do is they assume the word that comes into that cultural setting is a static, frozen-in-time statement. And you hear people say, well, God says it, I believe it, that settles it. Actually, you can take out I believe it. If God says it, that settles it. But that's what people say. Well, it's there in the Scriptures. God says it. I believe it. That settles it. That takes no approach of God's incremental journey with people. There is no thought in those kind of statements of what the word originally meant to the people in that culture. Now, from our perspective, from our historical cultural location, we look at those statements and think, far out. Talk about repressive and primitive. When that word came into that cultural setting, the people of that time did not see it that way. They looked at it and thought, far out. That that would be good. That would be redemptive. Oftentimes, the Mosaic law in an ancient Near Eastern setting was a revolutionary moral improvement over the existing cultural norms. It amounted to a massive improvement on the surrounding cultures. Look, take, for example, um, <clears throat> the principle of lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. We look back and think, what a brutal way to do justice, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It seems primitive and repressive for us, but from their point of view, as that word came into the culture. It was a marked advance on what existed. In that setting, if somebody hurt you, you, in response, hurt them and their family. Then they came back and hurt your family and your tribe, and so it went on like Newton's cradle. Lex talionis, the eye for an eye principle, set a limit on punishment and personal vengeance in a culture that had run amuck with that. You read Genesis chapter four where Lamech says, if someone hurts me, I will hurt them sevenfold. And that's the general cultural norm. And so an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth into that culture is designed to prevent blood feuds and disproportionate retaliatory actions. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was never intended in God's plan to be a permanent, fixed, theocratic standard for all people, for all times. It completely misunderstands the redemptive movement of the text. There's a principle called the redemptive movement hermeneutic. Now, big word, it simply means texts move. Some some people have called it compassionate drift. And, And what that means is you look and you don't see God's words as static frozen in time, but God speaking into a culture, speaking to where people are, seeking to move them to where he wants them to be. There's a progressive trajectory and incremental development toward God's ultimate ideal. So with that whole principle of lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, by the time you get to the New Testament, you don't find Jesus saying, well, eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. You find him saying, if someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. And you hear Paul saying, repay no man evil for evil. So there is this movement of the text Into that setting, an attempt to stop blood feuds and retaliatory actions that just got out of hand to the place where God is saying, I want peace. I want peace between individuals. Don't take vengeance for yourself. That's a massive step from there to there. If you fail to see the redemptive movement of Old Testament texts, you look at them from a completely different perspective to whom uh, from from where they they originally were or, or, where they originally orig, originated what god intended to do in that particular culture they saw them as revolutionary developments we look back from our time and see them as primitive and repressive when western people object to the old testament there are two issues that come up perennially. Slavery and the treatment of woman. And they treat those subjects and those words as static, frozen in time words, and they fail to see redemptive movement. Listen, when it comes to slavery, let me just take a few minutes. When it comes to slavery, a number of things need to be said. Firstly, slavery in Israel was not as we imagine it to be. Now, when we think of slavery in our Western context, we inevitably think of it as the antebellum American form. We think of 17th, 18th century Atlantic slave trade, race-based, totally dehumanizing, totally evil. Now, of course, in the ancient Near East, slavery like that did exist. Slavery in the ancient world was pervasive, deeply embedded in the economic and social institution of the times. Historian Paul Johnson says the ancient Near Eastern slavery codes are noted for the ferocity of their physical punishment. Tongues, breasts, hands and ears could be cut off for certain crimes. One hundred lashes was a mild form of punishment. Two hundred lashes was considered normal. So that's, that's the ancient Near East. Mosaic law dramatically changed that. Slavery in Israel was very, very different. Slavery in Israel was much more like indentured servanthood. Slaves were given radical, unprecedented legal and human rights. Their basic needs were met and masters were held to legal account for their treatment. Physical punishment was limited, no more than 40 lashes. Now we look at that and go, that is so repressive. That is so primitive. How could the Bible endorse such behavior? Listen, as harsh as it sounds from our cultural perspective, that was unparalleled in comparable ancient Near Eastern codes. Slaves were released after seven years in Israel, after seven years of service. They were sent out into freedom. They were accompanied by generous provisions and with a gracious spirit. You can read that in Deuteronomy 15, 19. They had to be given stuff when they were released. The Mosaic law forbade the kidnapping of people for the purposes of slavery. And if people were caught doing that, they were subject to the death penalty. Ancient Near Eastern codes meant that runaway slaves were executed. The Mosaic law commanded Israel to offer them safe haven. Listen, an informed inhabitant of the ancient Near Eastern world would be thinking, quick, give me to Israel. It sounds like heaven, and to them it was. We look back and say, how repressive, how primitive. We see it as a static, frozen-in-time word into a culture. From their perspective, it was unbelievably liberating, and we don't see the redemptive movement of the text. Now, granted, the Old Testament Mosaic Codes were a compromise between the ideal and what was actually enforceable. It's not the ultimate ethic, but it was a massive improvement on what existed. Nonetheless, self-confessedly, it was less than God's ideal. So you come across into the New Testament, and Paul is still grappling with the ideal and what is enforceable in the Roman world. He's much, much more forthcoming than the Mosaic Codes were, but he's still trying to walk wisely in a culture in which slavery remained firmly embedded and socially acceptable. Nonetheless, he puts forth the ethic And he says in Galatians 3.28, there's neither Jew nor Greek, neither bond nor free. There's neither male nor female, female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. This is the creational ethic breaking into the here and now with the foreshadowing of what will ultimately be the redemptive ethic. Wherever possible, Paul encourages masters and slaves to work together toward the ideal of equality and freedom. That issue is exactly mirrored by the issue of the treatment of women in the Old Testament. If you see the treatment of women in the Old Testament as frozen in time, static words, then you will be repulsed and you will be embarrassed and you will be tempted to cut away the Old Testament, unhitch your faith and you're apologetic from it. So it's just embarrassing. The ancient Near Eastern cultures were characterized by strong patriarchal leadership in which there were significant abuses toward women. They were seen as little more than chattels. The rape of a woman was seen as an offense against property, not as an offense against a person. You had to recompense either the husband or the father for the violation of the property. You can imagine in that setting a woman taken as, as a captive after a battle. They could be and most often were treated in a barbaric manner, so much so that a father or a husband would often take the life of his spouse or his daughter rather than have her subjected to that invading army. The Mosaic law speaks to that. And in Deuteronomy 21, it says, when you wage war against your enemies and the Lord hands them over to you and you take prisoners, if you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you fall in love with her and take her as your, uh, and take her as your wife, bring her into your home. She must shave her head, cut her nails, remove her prisoner's clothing and live in your house, mourning her father and her mother for one month. After that, you may consummate the marriage. You will be her husband and she will be your wife. But if you aren't pleased with her, you must send her away as she wishes. You are not not allowed to sell her for money or treat her as a slave because you've humiliated her. Now, from our Western 21st century perspective, we look at that and go, what the heck is that about? That is barbaric. It was revolutionary for them. It was revolutionary for them. This is the beginning of human rights, of people being treated with grace and compassion. It's not a frozen in time static text a once and for all prescriptive word it completely fails to see the heart of god the compassionate drift the redemptive movement hermeneutic that i'm talking about by the time you reach the new testament you find both jesus and paul interacting with women including women in the discipleship and leadership of the community galatians 3:28 there's neither male nor female wasn't like that in the beginning it won't be like that in the end we are moving incrementally toward god's ideal and i find it really disturbing that so many churches have locked onto that one and say no no the scriptures say and of course there are some isolated passages in the new testament that seem to back up those those ideas you do the work and you find either Paul is schizophrenic, saying one thing and doing another, or what he says in those isolated contexts do not mean that women are excluded from the community in any shape or form, including leadership. There's a redemptive movement in the text. So many of the scriptures that people stumble over in our day and that are seen as harsh and repressive should be actually classified as God's gentle nudges along the redemptive pathway. The literal, isolated words are not the destination. God is heading a people toward a divine ideal. And rather than risking the whole journey by laying it out in one foul swoop and having it scuttled by people's ignorance, he simply moves people in steps along the way. Now, I'm very aware that as I wind up and as I finish, there will be people who are saying, okay, well, that's, that's kind of interesting, Don, but isn't there a danger in this? Isn't there a danger lurking behind this redemptive movement hermeneutic that you're talking about? Couldn't it end up just as relativism where we find something we don't like and we simply say, well, that isn't God's final intention. He's moving us redemptively toward an ideal. And the answer to that is, yeah, it could, it could be. And, and some people are doing exactly that. However, what I would want to say is you don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. You don't reject that because some people are using it poorly, in the same way that we don't reject motor cars because some people drive them badly. We say, do it well, do it properly. And this redemptive movement demands that we approach the scripture with honesty, with integrity, with discernment, and I would want to say, and in community. You are not free just simply to say, well, I think there's maybe a bit of redemptive movement in that idea. Is that what the church has historically said? Is that what, is that what uh, people and scholars are generally saying? Now, always you've got the scholars on the edge, you're saying all kinds of things. But what has the church traditionally said about this? We do theology in community. You have to really ask, is there really redemptive movement in that? Can I see God's creational intention? Can I see his redemptive intention? And can I see the movement between them? Now, you take violence, you can see it. You take slavery, you can see it. You take women, you can see it. You take some forms of sexual expression that are supposed to be moving along that line, and you cannot see it. It's not there in the beginning. It's not there in the end. And the texts throughout are, negatively, are uniformly negative with regard to those expressions. And I'm sorry, you simply just cannot say, well, it's a bit like slavery. and It's a bit like woman. We're changing our minds. We change our minds because the scripture allows us and gives us the freedom to see there's a movement. And if it's not there, we don't change our minds. And I've had people say, well, oh, you know, Don, you're just a dinosaur in a tar pit. Man, you're so old-fashioned. You need to get with the program. And I would want to say, you show me the program in the book and I'll get with it. We are a people that are animated by the scripture and not simply by the cultural currents. And if the cultural currents are going in one place and the scriptures are standing firmly against them, then like Luther, we take our stand and we say, here I stand. And I don't care if I'm a dinosaur or a tarpid. And I don't care if I'm, I'm, I'm so-called on the wrong side of history. It's too soon to say we're on the wrong side of history. You've got to wait 500 years before you can say that with certainty. We are a people who are to be animated by the Scripture. If you want to be a resilient disciple, then the whole purpose of this series has been be in the Scriptures. Because that's what produces resilience. That's what builds the resilience into your life. You need to be a person who's in the book, the whole book, the whole story, not just act four of the story, but the whole story. Act one and two and three and four, and we're living in act five. So I don't mind being called a dinosaur. I would want to say to you, who perhaps are listening, uh, either here physically present or by podcast, I would want to say to you, let your beliefs be animated by and rooted in the scripture. Don't simply be pushed around by people who say, well, if you don't adopt this idea, you're going to be on the wrong side of history. For those people who do that, I would want to say to you, God made you in this image and you're returning the favor and you are simply being squeezed by a cultural mold, and in the end, you will have a God of your own making. I know the redemptive movement, hermeneutic, is not the answer to all the difficulties of the Old Testament, but the reality is there are lots of really good scholars, really intelligent people who have grappled with those ideas, and you don't have to start from scratch. You don't have to reinvent the wheel. You can read some of the things they're doing and saying. Get into the scriptures yourself. Be people of the book, okay? Thanks for listening. If you'd like to know more about our faith community, feel free to visit our website, gatewaychurch.org.nz.